you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of worship, or you can use your phone, or your Kindle, or any other TSA-approved device, and we will continue. So I say to you, hear the Word of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray um, that where people feel that they are in bondage or slavery to their sins or their guilt, I pray that you would uh, free them, that today would be a day of liberation. I pray that we would realize in the course of this um, teaching uh, how zealous you are for us. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So if you've been here, this is my first week back. I was on vacation for a few weeks. I was actually on vacation while I was here last week, which is not typically how I spend my vacation, but uh, nonetheless, we're picking back up with Galatians. Typically, I would preach like one of the epistles until like Labor Day, and then we'd switch to the Old Testament. But what we're going to do this year is I'm going, to con- I'm going to finish Galatians. And so that will take us up to, I don't know, October or November. And then we'll probably do um, a, a nice fat series on stewardship and giving. Something for you, <laughs> something for you to look forward to. Um, <laughs> and that's when all your friends will come. Um, so with all of that said, uh, I'm going to open this morning with a question, like, as, I, as I often do. So the question is, is this. Under what circumstances would you willingly go to prison? Or let me put it differently. Is there, is, there, is there any reason that you could think of where you might go to prison on purpose? I mean, I, I, obviously I was thinking about that this week. And, and you know, we're talking about people who, who are going back into to slavery. And I thought, is there, I wonder if this is a thing, people going to prison on purpose. And so I looked it up on the Google. And what do you know? It's a thing. It's a big thing. In fact, the first thing that came up was I saw an article um, about Japan. Japan has the oldest population uh, of any nation in the world. And 
a crisis that the Japanese are having right now is that senior citizens are committing petty crimes on purpose in order to get put in prison. Because they have no family, they have no friends, they have no one to take care of them, and they think, well, at least in prison, I'll have three squares, health care, all of that stuff. I mean, here's how bad it is, that one out of five prisoners in Japanese prisons is a senior citizen, and nine out of ten of them are there on purpose. That's just Japan. Now, on one hand, that's sort of understandable, frankly. On the other hand, when you look at the United States, there's actually a lot of people in the United States that go to prison on purpose. They commit crimes in order to go back to, to, to prison. Maybe they need health care, or maybe they, they're just tired of being homeless, or maybe it's because they want to just go. They'll, they'll commit a crime that will get them put into prison just for, or jail just for the, the winter, right? And they'll at least be warm, and then they can get out, and everything will be cool. Now, on the surface of it, when I think about going to prison on purpose, it sounds crazy. At least to me it does. I can understand it at some level, but on the other hand, I can't imagine ever doing that. However, we look at this text today, and what we find out is that you and I do it all the time. Anytime that you and I rely on works of the law rather than the work of Jesus, we're actually going backward. We're, 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 in other words, we're, we've been freed from our slavery. Remember the book of Galatians, Paul says over and over and over again. We've been freed from our slavery. We've been made sons. And every time we, we go back and rely on works of the law or our own self-righteousness, we might as well be going back into slavery or back into prison, if you will. And so at this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has thrown everything at them that he could possibly throw at them to try and convince them of the truth of the gospel. If you remember, I'm not going to summarize the whole book for you, but remember Paul has appealed. He appealed to his own authority as an apostle. He appealed to his own conversion story. He appealed to their conversion stories. He's appealed to history. He's appealed to theology. He appealed to Father Abraham. He's appealed to Moses. He even appealed to the law to tell them and show them and explain to them how the law is not enough to save them. And so at this point in the letter, what's left for him to do? And the answer is pretty simple. At this point in the letter, he begs. He begs. When, when does anyone beg? You beg when you get to a point where there's, you have no other recourse. And so Paul has gotten to the point in the letter where he's assuming that there are still people in the Galatian congregation, as this being read, who still don't get it. And so now he's simply going to beg them. And he does so by way of what I'm going to call three checks. So he's going to give us this morning, we're going to look at three different checks. We're going to look at a gut check, a joy check, and then finally a mom check, right? That's going to be the important one. At least the moms are going to think it is. <laughs> so gut check, what are, we, what are we getting at here? So look at verses 8 through 11 again. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul opens up by reminding them who they used to be, what they used to be. He says, formerly you were slaves. You did not know God, and you were slave to those things that by nature are not God's. So how do you know you're enslaved to something? Right, so on one hand, um, remember I, I'm, I'm fond of asking if you were self-deceived, would you know it? 
No, not really. But one good gut check is to say, am I enslaved to anything? One way to, to determine whether you're enslaved to anything is consider any particular thing in your life. Whether maybe it's your spouse or it's money or it's security or it's something. If you were to lose that thing and it caused you to despair, not sorrow, but like to despair even of life, you were enslaved to that thing. So for example, remember several years ago um, when, when hackers hacked the Ashley Madison affair site? And within a day, or, and they published the names of people who had signed up for that site. Within a day, at least one pastor committed suicide because his name had been revealed. And that's sad, and it's a tragedy, but it also reveals that his name, he was enslaved to his reputation. He was enslaved to his name. The easy one, if you look back in 1929 or you look back in 2008, every time the stock market crashes, there's a rash of suicide among bankers and, and stockbrokers. Why is that? Because you have a group of people, not all of them, but some of them who have put all of their hope and comfort in the fact that they are going to be financially secure for the rest of their lives. And when that's ripped out from under them, they're brought to despair. And so is there anything in your life that if you lost it, it would, ca it would cause you despair? That's how you know you're enslaved to it. But Paul wants to remind them, you used to be like that. Most of us. He said, what happened to change that? He says, but now, in verse 9, he says, you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You know, I, I often wonder if, if the Apostle Paul had access to like a word processor, if the New Testament would be completely different. Because did you notice what he did in this verse? He corrected mid-course. He, he, he's dealing with a bunch of people who the, the fact that it is that they're constantly trying to figure out what they need to be doing right and what, how they need to be doing it. And if they do the right things, Jesus will love them. And he says, you came to know God. And he wants to make sure that they know that it wasn't, that they didn't even do that. And so instead of just deleting it and starting over, he just says, rather, let me fix this here. He says, you, you, but now you've come to know God. He says, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? How can, how can you go back given the fact that you have experienced this thing? And you see, there's a, there's a principle here that basically the, the more you focus on what you do and how, how you are doing, the more miserable you will be. And the more you focus on the person and work of Jesus, the better off you will be. In other words, when you begin to focus on the fact that I want to know God, I want to be faithful, I want to do all the right things, you tend to be uh, not a particularly happy person. You might end up feeling pretty self-righteous on those times that you're successful, but at the end of the day, the more we focus on Jesus' faithfulness to us, the better off we are. You've heard me say that, I probably say it once a month. The, the question we often ask each other is, how are you doing with your faith? How, how, how faithful have you been this week, this month, this year? And if we're honest, we have to say, not very. I've told you, in accountability groups, most people, you go and it's like you either lie or you sort of go, eh, I don't know. I mean, I, I had a friend in seminary, two friends, what, we all ended up in Atlanta together, and one of the guys wanted to have an accountability group. And he's the kind of guy, he made a list of 10 things that he wanted to check every single week to ask us how faithful were we in these 10 things. And 
myself and another guy, the, my best friend, we would actually meet about a half hour before that. And we'd just put a, one check at the first thing and just write a line down the whole thing. That's how we started the meeting. And then when we get to the, to the real accountability meeting, and the other guy would always be upset. He's like, you guys aren't taking this seriously. I'm like, no, we're actually, we're taking it completely seriously. Out of all these 10 things, I've failed. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to talk about now? What is a better thing to ask instead of saying, how faithful have you been to Jesus is how faithful has Jesus been to you? When you ask that question, well, I could talk all day about that. I can, look at, I can look at last week and tell you probably any number of things. I look at the last month, and, and I could probably fill hours. I could look at the last year, two, three, and it would just be full. Tommy, how faithful have you been? You got one minute? See how that works? Paul wants to remind them that they, that is God's initiative that has brought them to where they are, not their own uh, figuring things out. And he continues on. He says, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I mean, basically, the, the, he, he's, he's asking this question, how can you go back there? And the, the, the idea is almost, if you, if you know the parable, the prodigal son, remember that, that, that there was two sons, an elder brother and a younger brother and a rich father, and the younger brother went to the father and said, give me my inheritance, and he went out to, and squandered his inheritance, and he ended up to the point where he was in the pig pen, eating the things that the pigs eat, and then he comes back and he formulates his plan, I'll go back to my father's household and ask him if I can just be one of his servants, one of his slaves. He's going to go to prison on purpose because he doesn't think he has any other options. He says, I'll go back and be one of his servants. And before he can get there, the father runs out and receives him and says, my son who is lost is found, kill the fatty calf, and they have a huge party. Now imagine the next morning and the father comes in and says, son, I'm so happy you're back. What are you going to do today? He's like, yeah, you know, I was was thinking I might just go back to the pig pen. I don't, want the, I don't want the responsibility of being a son. I don't want people always looking over me. It was just easier to be a slave and just to be stuck in that pig. That would be crazy talk. If he, if he really understood what it, how he had been received back, and that's what we do. Paul's trying to say, I don't understand. If you really understand the gospel, how can you go back to trying to live by works? And yet we do it all the time, which is why we remind ourselves of the gospel all the time. We remind, you know, the, the old thing of Martin Luther, why do you preach justification by faith alone every week? And he said to his congregations, because you forget it every single week. So Paul, the, the, the gut check is, are you enslaved to anything? Paul says to them, I mean, I would hate for the apostle Paul to write to me, I'm beginning to wonder if I wasted my time on you. <laughs> he moves from there to a joy check. Right, so the gut check is, are you enslaved? Do you really get that God has initiated with you and that you are free from your sins now and forevermore? And to, go, to, to rely on works of the law is not to move forward, but it's actually a move backward. He moves from there to the joy check. What's the, the joy check? Notice in verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting in 
the book of Galatians, this is where he begs them. He says, brothers, I entreat you, or I beg you, become as I am, for I, I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. This is the first time in the book of Galatians, four, almost five chapters, that Paul uses an imperative. What I mean by that is it's the first time he tells them they need to do something. Up to this point, it's been basically 100%. God has done it all. Jesus has done it all. The Holy Spirit has done it all. And now he begs them, and the first imperative he gives them is this, become as I am. Now, on one hand, that might sound a little smug. On the other hand, what does Paul mean by that? Become as I am. Trust in Jesus and not your works. Become as I am. Forsake all of the things. Remember in Philippians where Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was blameless. He says, I gave all of that up in favor of the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not my own. Become like I am, he says. Remember when he was testifying before Felix, and Felix says, what do you want now? And Paul says, all I want is for you to become like me. And he gives a little dig. You remember, he says, except for these chains. And not only did Paul want them to become like him, he reminds them that he became like them. The way he won them, the way anyone is one, is by incarnation. Let me read to you what Paul means when he says, I became like you. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more, more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, that I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That the Apostle Paul was willing to put aside things that he thought were important to become like other people that he might be able to communicate the gospel to them. And that's our job, by the way, as a church. It's our job as individual Christians. Are we becoming like other people? Not necessarily in their sin, but are we actually, can, can people identify with us? You know, I had a, I had a, I had a <laughs> Judy and I were on this raft trip and you know, we, the, the, unfortunately for this kid, he was stuck in a raft with me for four days. And at one point, he gave me one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. And on, the, on one hand, on the other hand, I wasn't sure how to answer him. Because he said, Tommy, I bet you're a cool pastor, aren't you? You can ask Judy. I was sort of stymied. Because I wanted to say, of course I am. But on, one, uh, on the other hand, I was sort of like, mm, I don't know. Sort of depends who you are, I guess. I didn't grow up in the church at all. And so folks like that, it's easy for me to become like they are. How do, who are you and how did God make you? And, and what is the place where he might actually, it might be a real easy transition for you to just become the gospel to somebody where they are because you have become like they are. That's what Paul is getting at there. Notice he continues, He says in verse 13, he says, For you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So it's interesting that notice he says that that the reason he, he planted the church there, the reason that he preached the gospel to them is because he had some kind of ailment. 
In other words, it doesn't sound like he, he planned on preaching the gospel to the, these people in Galatia, but it was because of some disease. Some people think it was malaria. Other people think it was some eye disease. What we know is whatever it was, it made him hideous. He, that he was so bad, he says, my condition was a trial to you. Apparently just being near him, he was hard to look at. And yet, he didn't despise that. And there's another principle we find here that God, instead of that what God did through Paul's illness is he used Paul's illness to accomplish his purpose. That God always uses hard, difficult things to accomplish his purposes ultimately. And what, is, what does that mean? How does that work out in our lives? You know, in May of 2017, I had a brain bleed. Many of you know that. And you want to know what? I had a lot of plans that week. I had appointments I needed to do. I had a sermon to write. I had all these things, and yet God sends me this fatal thing <laughs> right in the middle of it. And I happen to survive, so I have to be stuck in a hospital for a week. And if you've ever been on a neuroscience ICU, they don't even have bathrooms there because no one goes to the bathroom in the neuroscience ICU. And no one talks on the neuroscience ICU. How bad can it get? Except if you're a preacher, and you can talk on the neuroscience ICU. Everyone wants to come in and talk to you. And they all want to find out about who you are and why you're here. And why are all these military people coming in? And why are black people and white people and Asian people coming in? This is like the craziest thing. Why are all these people coming here? And guess who got to hear the gospel? Over and over and over again. I would take laps around the neuroscience thing. Make sure everyone was covered. You see, the, the God used that brain bleed. All my appointments were canceled. And you know what's so funny? I don't even know what they were. And yet I do know lots of people were affected by that. I mean, think about it. So, so look at your, your, the plans that you have and remember this, that God has plans too. Whenever you get frustrated, when your plans get crushed, remember that God has plans too. That maybe the hard thing he's sending, he's sending your way isn't because he wants to do something to you, but he wants to do something through you. He wants to use you in the life of someone else. He wants to use you in order to, to help someone else to understand the gospel. Paul goes from there. He says after that, he says, you didn't despise me. He says, my condition was a trial to you. Right? I think, I think of that. I think of my wife when I read that verse. <laughs> um, and then verse 15, after all that, he said, what has become of your blessedness or what has become of your joy? He says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. In other words, he's saying, you, when you guys became Christians, you were so excited. You would, have, you would have done anything. You would have done anything for me. You would have ta put, taken your very eyes out of your head and given them to me. And his question is, what happened? What happened to your joy? Now ask yourself this question, can you remember back when you became a Christian? Some people can, some people can't. I can remember back when I became a Christian, it, and it was just, it was euphoric. It was just almost pure joy, right? I, I become a Christian, my sins were, were, were washed away, and, and I now had a relationship with God, but over time that begins to fade. Why does it begin to fade? Why did it fade with the Galatians? Why does it fade with you and me? I think new Christians are always happy and experience joy is because almost by definition, 100% of their focus is on Jesus. And to the extent you're focused on Jesus, you will experience joy. So when someone becomes a Christian, it's all joy because they're all there. 
And over time, as we become older in the faith and maybe more cynical, we see some things, we read the Bible a few times, and suddenly we're pretty far away, actually. And we have to ask the question, whatever happened to your joy? That's the, the, the joy check. What happened to it? Where is it? Why aren't you more joyful? Remember Spurgeon's line? He says, uh, for some of you, that um, he says, I forget the quote now. It had to remember it's one where he says, when you think about hell, he says, when you think about heaven, you should smile, and when you think about hell, your normal faces will do. And he's questioning why Christians don't experience more joy. And Christians don't experience more joy for the same reason people who are not Christians don't experience more joy. And it's because we take our eyes off of the cross. Every human being is either moving toward the cross or you're moving away from the cross. And to the extent we're moving toward the cross, we will experience joy. Paul said, what happened to you guys? What happened to them is they replaced the cross with works of the law. They replaced the cross with their own self-righteousness, these days, seasons, months, and years. And when you replace the cross with works of the law or works of your own righteousness, how could you experience joy? Paul says to them, what happened? What happened to your blessedness? In verse 16, I love it. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have you ever told someone the truth because you really cared about them and they got angry at you? Okay, let me tell you, I think I experience that daily. And I'm sorry, I come to grips with that. But in this case, think about, imagine if you went to the doctor and you had some terminal illness and he said to you, Tommy, you have a terminal yet curable illness. And I responded by saying, seriously? How dare you tell me that? How dare you tell me that I'm not whole and healthy and can't do it all? And what would the doctor think? He would think you're like crazy. And Paul's asking them, I am, I'm trying to get through to you guys what will give you your freedom, not what will take it away. What will give you joy, not what will give you misery. And he says, if I become your enemy by telling you the truth. And so he gives them this, this gut check and he gives them the joy check and then he moves from there to the mom check. And the mom check has to do with, with him trying to help them understand how much he cares. Because besides the love of God the Father, who loves you the most? You, you can say it, your mom, usually, typically. And Paul compares himself in, at, at the end of this passage to a mother in labor with the same baby a second time. That seems like it would be tough. But he wants them to know there's a difference between his care for them and the, the false teacher's care for them. What, the, what he wants for them, ultimately, is he wants to see Christ formed in them. He doesn't care what they think about him as long as they are growing in Christ and Christ is formed in them. And what do the false teachers want? Notice what Paul says. He says, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
So he says, verse 17, these false teachers, these agitators, he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make, make much of them. In, in other words, how do you make much of someone? Well, t- typically, you make much of someone by giving them things. You might give them praise. You might give them accolades. Um, if, it's your, if it's your child, you may give them a kiss or, or a hug. If it's your wife, you know, you might give her uh, jewelry. If it's your husband, you might give him, you know, the Binford 9000 table saw. Something, you give them what you, something that, that you think they'll enjoy, something that's good for them because you love them. He says, he says what these people are doing is they make much of you. They're giving you praise. They're flattering you for the purpose of actually shutting you out and that you might make much of them. In other words, they're making much of you so that you will follow them on Twitter or so that you will listen to their podcast and so that you will help them build their platform so they can even be more famous, so they can make more money, they can uh, shaft more people. You know, I read uh, the Babylon Bee this week. It, it had a great, it's a satire site, and it, it said Joel Osteen came out with a new book for millennials called You Can Even. Get it? Right? As opposed to I can't. Yeah, that fell flat. All right. Anyhow, the point is this. They make much of you that you might make much of them. They make much of you, and what that does, that, that whole thing that they're doing, it actually shuts you out of the gospel rather than pulling you into the gospel. It puts you on the outside. Works of the law, we've said over and over again, are a step backwards. That when you really understand the gospel and what Paul is trying to get across to them, what he wants them to know is that more, more important than the fact that these agitators make much of them and even more important than the fact that Paul would make much of them is the fact that God himself makes much of them. That if you really, when you really understand the gospel, when you really understand the mom check, if you will, what you understand is that God himself makes much of you. Because, right, what do we do when we, we want to make much of someone? We give them things. What has God done? He has given his own son, Jesus, for you. How much more could he make of you than to say, let me give my, my only begotten son on your behalf. He will take all of your sin, and I will give you all of his righteousness. He will take all of your curse, and I will give you all of his blessing. He will become a slave. He will go to prison so that you can be free. God has made much of us. And when we get that, it changes things. We get that. It should transform us. Let me close with this, the story of George Matheson. He's a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. If you want to follow along, actually, in a hymn book, we're not going to sing, but it's hymn number 708. I'm going to read to you in a minute. Basically, George Matheson, it was in the mid-19th century, um, he was one of the stars of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. He, by the age of 20, he had already written two books. He was going places. People were comparing him to Charles Spurgeon, who was maybe the greatest preacher who had ever lived. And George Matheson, right around that time, also got engaged. And he was going to be married to a beautiful woman and have this great career. And then suddenly he started to lose his sight. He started to go blind. And the, the worse his blindness got, eventually his fiance came and broke up with him. And she said she didn't want to be married to a man who was blind and who was an invalid. Okay, that would hurt, I think. And so his sister came and stepped in, and his sister cared for him, waited on him hand and foot for the next 20 years. And, at the, and around the end of that 20 years, his sister came to him and said, George, 
I've fallen in love and I'm going to be married, which means I can't live with you and I can't take care of you anymore. So he would be completely and utterly alone. And so he goes and on the night of his sister's wedding, he comes home after the reception and the party and and the story goes that he wrote this hymn that I'm going to read you the lyrics for. He wrote the hymn in five minutes and it's never been edited. So let me read this to you from a man who has seemingly lost everything. He says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths to flow may richer, fuller be. O light the following all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through the pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and I feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be, O cross that lifteth up my head. I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. And the line that struck me in that is in verse 3, where he says, the joy that seekest me through the pain. You see, the Galatians, their lives in many ways were just like our lives. They have troubles, they have pains, they have trials, all of these things. And the question is, is will we, we move toward the cross when those things happen, or will we move away from the cross? And do we realize that in the, all of this, no matter which way we're moving, that God is zealous for us? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would... Um, for those of us who are grappling, maybe, maybe we're dabbling with going back to prison, back into slavery, I pray that this morning would be uh, freeing for us. I pray that you would continue to open our eyes on a daily basis to the truths of the gospel, the initiative of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. At this point in the service, if you're able to stand, I'd ask you to please stand with me as we prepare to receive God's time.